0: Hello and welcome to the April 26th edition of Ukraine Without Hype, where we take a look at the biggest stories of the week from Ukraine and the region. I'm Romyuk Kuklansky and beside me is my colleague Anthony Bardaway.
1: Hello, fans might be expecting Maria here, but I'll do my best to take over
0: her chair. Later we'll get into what is currently the largest protest movement in Ukraine, but first we have to talk about the Sword of Damocles being held above the country's head. If there is a single news story to follow in Ukraine, then it's the fact that its neighbor, Russia, amassed a massive military force immediately on and within Ukraine's borders. Military analysts have guessed that something in the range of 110 up to 150,000 Russian soldiers are poised to attack Ukraine, along with their armor, artillery, air support, and so on. Many, like the 76th Airborne Regiment, are already veterans of the Russian war on Ukraine. Now, Russian military buildups aren't exactly unusual. There are the occasional build-ups in the Rostov region near the Donbass, and of course in the Donbass itself. And Crimea is virtually a giant military encampment. What is unusual this time is the sheer size of the deployment, but also where Russia is doing the reinforcing. In addition to Donbass and Crimea, the concern is on the northern border. Vraniezh has become a major staging area, threatening the Chernihiv, Sumy, and Kharkiv regions. There has also been movement in Belarus, whose dictator Alexander Lukashenko has increasingly accepted integration with Russia while cracking down on the pro-democracy movement. Meanwhile, in the Azov Sea, Russia has blockaded the Kerch Strait in order to stop the entry of military and government vessels. They've also moved elements of the Caspian fleet to the Black Sea, including several amphibious landing craft. These ships have been spotted making practice runs of amphibious landings in Crimea. Within the Russian-occupied Donbass, the occupation authorities have been conscripting young men and have been digging in their heels for war. And we really have to note that this hasn't just been build-up. This has already translated into violence. There had already been a flare-up of fighting on the Donbass lines on the weeks leading up to all of this, but it is now at a height that hasn't been seen at quite some time. But then, just as the tensions were building higher and higher, Russia seemingly blinked. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu announced that these were all just quote-unquote training exercises and that the soldiers would be sent back to their regular postings relatively soon. But
1: what was Moscow's initial explanation for why they were doing all of this?
0: So initially, the Russian government was saying that Ukraine was getting ready to retake Crimea by force, which, considering the power disparity between the Ukrainian and Russian militaries, is utterly ludicrous. But that is what Russia was saying officially as their main concern. Now, in March, Ukraine passed a law that underlined that regaining the occupied territories is still a policy priority. For the most part, it's just a general statement. But it is important to note that it's a statement from an administration that has often been accused of being too soft and conciliatory towards Russia. The main thrust of the bill was more about doing diplomacy to try and make Ukraine's allies more interested in Crimea again. A lot of it is cultural diplomacy to highlight the plight of the Crimean Tatar community. And then somewhere in there, it says that taking Crimea back was still on the table. The Kremlin and its media outlets immediately chose to interpret this as a statement of intent to invade the peninsula. But now, Shogu was saying that it was just a training exercise. Even though exercises are usually announced ahead of time, are observed, and are pretty carefully designed... Do not make it look like you are about to send in an armored column to attack a neighbor. There has not been any decrease in Ukrainian military presence near the front lines. It is obviously larger in order to fend off any attack. So if the first explanations were true, then why the change of heart?
1: So what you're saying right now is that the Russian army was not being fully honest about what its troop deployments were?
0: (laughs) I know, who would have thought? And... You know, there's nothing to say that Shogu is being honest now. These soldiers aren't gone yet, and many of the bases they'll be sent back to are in Crimea. But just because Russia says it was an exercise, that doesn't mean it wasn't an exercise. It was just an exercise to see how people would react if they didn't know it was one. So Russia was able to see how quickly and efficiently they could move soldiers and equipment into position. They were able to learn what to do with their logistics. Uh, They were able to learn how Ukraine would bolster its defenses, how it would behave politically, and they learned what the international community's reaction would be.
1: But what could have been, and I guess still is, the worst case scenario here? Russia did all this as a dry run for a second and probably larger invasion of Ukraine. Not to say that it will happen, and I think we have to be very, very careful to say this is all just theoretical, but the Russian military now has a lot more information of how they can do such a deployment better in the future.
0: If we're talking about the worst case scenario where Everything goes wrong, everything goes poorly, most of Ukraine's border is targeted for attack. It would be targeted by a force not overwhelmingly smaller than the entirety of Ukraine's current active duty military, 150,000 Russians to 250,000 Ukrainians. If there is going to be a renewed invasion, it will likely focus on seizing the Kherson Oblast up to the Dnipro River, then along the Azov Sea coast to create a land connection from the Russian mainland to Crimea. At the moment, Russia is only connected to Crimea via the Kerch Strait Bridge. The Kherson region is also the home of the North Crimea Canal, not long after the Russian occupation. Ukraine blocked off the man-made canal that redirected water from the Dnipro River to irrigate much of the Kherson region before continuing into Crimea. Crimea's infrastructure became the legal responsibility of its occupying power, and there was tremendous grassroots pressure in Ukraine to not expend Ukrainian resources to subsidize the invasion and illegal occupation of its territory. Now, Crimea is also very arid. It has a Mediterranean climate, and it really doesn't receive a lot of rainfall. And there has been a lot of droughts in the recent years. So the water supply has been stretched to its absolute limit beyond its limits, actually. If this summer is the same story as prior ones, then agriculture there is going to suffer immensely and there are going to be many more wildfires. So that means there's always this distant shadow of a threat to take the canal, even if it is in the background. In a larger sense, Russia may try to recreate the Novorussia program. In 2014, during the first wave of invasions, there was this idea, and we don't really know how seriously it was taken in Moscow, but there was this idea that Russia could conquer the entirety of southeastern Ukraine from Kharkiv to Odessa, though clearly this failed. And more than that, the Russia One television channel bizarrely suggested that everything east of the Dnipro River be turned into a quote unquote Republic of Troyeshina, which is named after a lower income neighborhood in northeastern Kiev with pretty poor transport connections to the rest of the city. Now, this is all very maximalist and unlikely. And I really want to repeat that most analysts seem to think it is very unlikely that Russia will invade once more. But then again, the invasions of Crimea and Donbass the first time were very unlikely. Ukraine's military largely atrophied in the years between independence and the start of the war in 2014 exactly because people didn't really believe that their brotherly neighbor would attack them. As history shows, unlikely things can happen.
1: And I want to go back to the part about the Azov Sea. While the Russian land forces are hopefully being pulled back, the blockade is not going anywhere yet. The front line itself has been pretty static throughout the years, but I think it's fair to say that Russia has been playing much more fast and loose with its navy. This isn't the first blockade of the Kerch Strait. Back in 2018, they captured three Ukrainian naval vessels and the 24 people on their cruise. The Azov Sea is and has been a serious flashpoint.
0: Absolutely, and Russia doesn't really have to do much to choke off the Azov Sea to Ukrainian shipping. Right now, the blockade only applies to military and government vessels, but that could always expand to the shipping. And no shipping means that the port cities of Berdyansk and Mariupol suffer economically. It means that it becomes that much harder for the industry that remains in Ukrainian-controlled Donbass to keep going. Russia might not gain much, but the Kremlin can really make Ukrainians hurt. And the possibility of, say, a naval invasion? So, like I said, the Russian Navy has been doing amphibious landing drills and has been reinforced by the Caspian Sea Fleet, and the Ukrainian Navy is not that strong. Much of it was captured when Russia took the naval base in Sevastopol in 2014. Many of the crews defected. Now, the Ukrainian Navy has been doing a decent job of rebuilding, but it is still not on par with the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And with Kerch blocked off, nothing new can be moved into the Azov Sea that isn't already there. The coast is vulnerable. Meanwhile, the coastal city of Mariupol is not only the economic hub of the region, it is also the shield between the Russian army and the rest of the country. It has always been the key to this war.
1: How about the international reactions during all of this? How has NATO, the EU countries, America, how have they
0: reacted? Honestly, it hasn't been great. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky went to Paris to try and win more support from the larger EU member states, but the results were not encouraging. Germany, France, they've issued the usual statements about being quote-unquote deeply concerned about the Russian threat and have called for Russia to withdraw their troops. If there is a single bright spot in all this, at least they have toned down their rhetoric about asking both sides to remain calm when it's only one side that has been positioning to invade the other, but there are no real guarantees more support has come from Ukraine's more immediate neighbors. Lithuania, for example, has called for an immediate NATO action plan for Ukraine to finally start the process of joining the alliance. And Lithuania and Poland together are meeting in Kiev right now as part of the Lublin Triangle format. The American response has been a little more reassuring, but still very cautious. Washington has stopped short of saying that the U.S. would militarily intervene to protect Ukraine, but it is offering a lot of material support. Two American destroyers were originally sent to the Black Sea as a deterrent, but were told to hold off in order to prevent an escalation. American President Joe Biden has also called for a meeting with Putin at some point in the coming months in order to hash out as many of these conflicts as possible. But there's still a lot to criticize about this reaction, mainly that it does nothing about the problem right in front of us, but also that Ukraine has not yet been invited to a summit that will be, or should be, mostly about it.
1: Now this here is what is most troubling to me about this. If this, I guess, drill was meant to suss out what will happen in case Russia really does try to invade, they got some pretty reassuring answers. Russia was able to get the US to back out of the Black Sea. Russia was able to bring President Biden to the table, even though this is the first administration since the end of the Cold War, to not say it wants to improve relations with Russia. Europe was, by and large, ineffectual. So Moscow knows that not many powers have Ukraine's back. Unreservedly. But speaking of things actually inside of Ukraine, that's enough to do with the foreign reaction. What did Ukraine do to prepare?
0: So I want to make it very clear that the Ukrainian military of 2021 is not the Ukrainian military of 2014. The Ukrainian army was completely unprepared in 2014. It had spent years being gutted out and sold for parts, especially under Yanukovych, but really under every single administration which is why the volunteer brigades were so important to Ukraine's defense at the time. But it is now an army that has been fighting a defensive war on its own soil for years. It is larger, better equipped, better drilled, better led, and can draw from a deep pool of combat veterans. And aside from the regular military, civilians have been forming local defense units. These may not be as institutionalized as the ones in Latvia, for example, but they are usually made up of or at least led by veterans. And of course, there are the Javelin anti-tank missiles supplied by the United States. While there is no solid confirmation about any details regarding these missiles, at least some of them have likely been greenlit to be deployed closer to the front lines in order to counter Russian armor. So overall, Russia is looking at a very different situation in Ukraine than it was in 2014, which itself was not anywhere near the success that moscow may have hoped for
1: i'd like to throw in another detail that colors this entire situation while all eyes are on ukraine the russian military was bolstering its forces in the arctic circle the umka 21 exercise was a very sophisticated set of navy trainings that focused on combined use of fighter jets and nuclear submarines along with other land-based drills as the polar ice caps recede the Arctic Ocean is becoming heated in other
0: ways as well. You know, I saw a, uh, at least one analyst on Twitter mention that this whole redeployment to the Ukrainian border was just a way to take attention off the fact that Russia was making moves into the uh, Arctic Circle. Classic redirection, really, just magician's tricks. Yeah, magician's tricks of moving 150,000 soldiers from as far east as Siberia to the border. Now, Defense Minister uh, Shogu said that they will start packing up by the end of April. But again, we're talking about massive armored units, massive artillery units that have to go back to Siberia. And Now, while the spring may make transit easier, if you imagine how much it must have cost just to bring them out there, it's hard to believe that Russia, especially in the current economic straits that it finds itself, is willing to spend just as much On a parlor trick. And another interesting take I also heard was a senior advisor at the Atlantic Council, Anders Asland, talk about the panic that he was seeing in Kiev. When pressed by interested parties on his sources for this so-called panic, he admitted that he had heard things from the elite pipeline. Now, Anthony and I are not elite. We don't even own cars. But... In my personal experience, I haven't seen any panic or even any hints of panic among the populace. Anthony, have you seen any uh, evidence of panic on your end?
1: Well, they say you try not to be the main character of Twitter for the day. But no, I did not see any sign of panic whatsoever. Even though we are in a state of lockdown at the moment, it's beautiful spring weather outside. The botanical gardens still work. The parks still work. People are having picnics. It's... Not a very tense situation to the average person on the street and has not been. The closest thing to panic that has been here might have been the start of the lockdowns last year, but even then it was not the same frantic level as it was in the United States. Ukrainians tend not to be an alarmist bunch. But this does speak something to the main thesis of this podcast, which is that too often Ukraine is talked about. And it doesn't speak for itself. The commentariat often only talk about Ukraine through their very specific uh, circles within Kiev, and are don't have as much of a connection to the country
0: as a whole. So, in general, Ukrainian uh, the the mood in Ukraine has been kind of wait and see. There hasn't been any widespread exodus of people fleeing to Europe or fleeing to Western Ukraine to avoid the oncoming Russian invasion, but at the same time, they are leaving a lot of the equipment at their staging areas. So even if, let's say, Russia starts moving soldiers back to their posts deeper into Russia, all of the equipment, the armor, the artillery, the trucks, all of that will remain at their staging points. This will present a ongoing and very acute threat to Ukraine, allowing the Russians to invade more or less overnight if they decide to.
1: Well, then I guess, as is always the case, we'll have to play a game of wait and see. But luckily, people in Kiev and throughout most of Ukraine did not see too much of an interference in their lifestyle and are probably overall much more concerned with the COVID lockdowns that happened. As has been the case throughout the last year, COVID really does seem to take the priority on people's concerns list.
0: Next, we'll be discussing what is currently the biggest protest movement happening within Ukraine. And I believe, Anthony, that you saw some of this in person, so tell us about it.
1: Yes, so roughly a month ago, at 7 p.m. on March 20th, I went to a protest on Bankova, which is the home of the Ukrainian presidential administration. The protesters were calling for the release of imprisoned right wing leader turned anti corruption activist Sergei Sternenko. Sternenko was recently sentenced to seven years in prison on dubious kidnapping charges by the Odessa the Primorsky court. The protesters were pointing at the previous attempts on his life and the poisoned well of a trial to justify their action, which was scheduled for his 26th birthday. I'll elaborate more on what led up to this later. At first, I had my doubts that anything too interesting would happen. People were just milling around, while the organizers were struggling to so much as get any chance going. Not exactly the stuff of revolutionary fervor. This quickly proved to be a miscalculation, though. While one of the leaders finished their speeches and the chants began, a row of demonstrators nearest the entrance to the administration began lighting flares. Some were only held up for effect, others were thrown at the building. And this quickly led to the area being filled with smoke as the activists rushed to cover the facade with as much anti-government, anti-police graffiti as they could. The police let them do it all at first, but moved in when the protesters used their flares to deliberately start fires. This included the building sign being set alight. This also led to the only actual clash of the evening. The police column pushed its way to the door of the presidential administration to deal with the fires and, presumably, put a damper on the increasingly rowdy protest. They managed to put the fire out, but quickly withdrew under pressure from a protester counterpush and a minor barrage of firecrackers, which I kind of found myself in the middle of. I did not witness any incidents of the police so much as laying hands on anyone at any point of the evening, including during the singular moment when it looked like the situation could have possibly escalated. Overall, it was a minor flare-up. It was done as soon as it started. But after the police retreated to the line well away from the action, the protest action and corresponding vandalism continued unimpeded until around 9pm. During this time, the most dramatic incidences were when a man broke open the windows on the entrance door and when they put the firecrackers and flares on hold, they have a full-sized firework display outside the mostly empty office windows. Note that these were pretty much empty because it was a weekend at nighttime an office building. The show was for the cameras. Now, some of the protesters also competed with each other to set fires on the upper floors of the presidential administration. Throughout this time, the only police presence near the action were the public relations officers, who, from what I saw, went unharassed. The man allegedly responsible for breaking out the windows on the door of the building was identified by police as Vlad Sord, a writer and publisher from Vinitsa. He is also a veteran of the Russo-Ukrainian War, having served in the Azov and right sector volunteer units, both of which are connected to Ukraine's far right. He was arrested on hooliganism charges after the protest dissipated. Now, as befits Sternenko's decidedly mixed impact, there was a range of political groups there. There were the mainstream liberals, decentrist nationalist groups, the ones wearing the logo of European Solidarity, the party of ex president Petro Poroshenko, and members of the liberal Holos party. I would learn later that a member of the Rada for the Holos faction was there, Yaroslav Yerchishin. He He's also the former director of the Ukraine branch of Transparency International. Cerninko's more recent activism was largely in conjunction with elements of European solidarity, so this makes sense. The far right largely avoided wearing identifying markers. There is a few exceptions, a small black sun patch or a face mask with the branding of tradition and order. While well, the groups of athletic looking young men in black balaclavas were not exactly subtle, but for the most part the far right opted not to put their own branding front and center like they usually do. Now in the time since that night, Commentators on social media noted a few things they found odd, mainly that the police did so little to stop the vandalism. The Ministry of Internal Affairs has said that this was intentional. They did not want to provoke a larger standoff. Considering Ukraine's recent history, they are very aware of what it looks like to have police cracking down on a protest and what that can lead to. They also blamed the biggest excesses on a small vanguard within the protest and tried not to condemn the entire action. Now, this report echoed what I saw that the vast majority of the people at the action simply stood back and watched, with only a very small number of mostly young men taking part in vandalism. There are also concerns about the very ostentatious nature of the tactics on display. Now, some of the more, let's say, conspiratorial minded thought that it was almost designed to turn the public against the cause. But to answer that, these are basically just football hooligans. That's what they do. There's really no need to have a conspiracy theory about why football hooligans act like football hooligans. In the following days, several demonstrators were served with notices of suspicion or even arrest. The highest profile among them was Sergei Filomanov. He was the former head of the Kiev branch of the National Corps and is a current member of the far-right group Honor. He has been accused of hooliganism, which is again a very
0: general charge in Ukraine. It's equivalent to basically a public disorder charge in the United States, though it can be whipped up into something more serious if the authorities decide to. The very Soviet charge. But my question is more, who is Sergei Starnenko, and how and why was he able to gather a couple of thousand people to come to his defense here?
1: Now, it's worth noting at first he's very young. Like I said, this action was meant to coincide with his 26th birthday. So the fact that this story begins all the way during the Maidan protests all those years ago something I took notice of. Now, at the time, he had already established himself as a serious leader and organizer. He was among the founders of the Odessa branch of the right sector, a coalition of various far-right organizations that came together to be a more united front against the government. Some listeners might remember the fights between Euromaidan and anti-Maidan demonstrators that happened in the aftermath of Yanukovych fleeing the country in February 2014, the so-called Russian Spring. In Odessa, this climaxed on May 2nd, and the trade union's building fire. Cernanko was one of the leaders of the pro-Maidan side during those clashes. In the intervening years, he rebranded himself as an anti-corruption liberal. His main focus being protesting against a notoriously crime-ridden world of Odessa real estate development. Though the term liberal has a bit of a broader meaning in Ukraine, the organizations he has worked with have a fondness for Ayn Rand, for example. As he gained friends in the liberal sphere, he began to lose them on the nationalist one, including a falling out with Azov movement leader Andrei Biletsky. Biletsky said that he's basically just a criminal. But that has not stopped the group Honor from being a backbone of his support, even though that is a satellite of the Azov movement. But another group Sternenko does not get along well with is the Odessa Mafia slash city government. And if you could tell me where the line between them is, Romeo,
0: please let me know there is absolutely no line. Odessa Mayor Trukhanov is a godfather in the famous Russian mob, which you may have heard of.
1: Odessa is as has always been. His ongoing conflicts with them has resulted in three attacks. One left him hospitalized, while in another he managed to, at least in his version of events, fatally stab his assailant. But what has him in the most legal trouble right now is the accusation that he kidnapped pro-Russian politician Sergei Sherbich, and held him on a $300 Ravner ransom, or about $11. The judge in this case was a blatantly pro-Russian and corrupt political actor, Viktor Paprevich. On February 23rd, Cernanko was sentenced to seven years, three months imprisonment on this charge. He is currently going through the appeals process, with his most recently scheduled meeting on April 16th being postponed. He is still facing charges for killing one of his alleged attackers in 2018, though that case is even more complicated by the others involved in the attack not being questioned by police and then fleeing the country. Many protests have been held throughout this legal drama, and more are likely
0: to come. So you mentioned that the far right wasn't the only ones that were supporting Cernengo there. You said European Solidarity, which is seen as kind of a centrist party, as well as Hulus, which is seen as the classically liberal in the uh, American sense party. But there were also, I've heard, some leftist movements that were supporting Sternenko. Now, why would leftists come out to support a protest in favor of a former far-right leader?
1: So the main argument here to keep in mind is the one of just basic institutionalism. If the courts can go after one person on complete nonsense charges, then they can go after everyone else. So on one hand, that is an argument from values. You have to have a good court system in place and you have to protest whenever it does not live up to those standards and on just the pragmatic level it's a one of long-term defense if they can go after someone you don't like they'll they can come after you
0: that's an interesting argument i'm not sure if i completely agree with the reasoning but there was another thing you mentioned that also stood out to me and that was this talk of a conspiracy theory now with QAnon in the United States being a barely past memory, and in many places it's still going strong, this kind of conspiratorial thinking has spread, you know, throughout the world, and especially in far-right circles. Now, this conspiracy theory where this vandalism was so loud and so ostentatious, was this coming from far-right commentators on the internet, for example, and is there really any basis to believe that, you know, maybe those vandals were in fact trying to provoke something?
1: Now, when I mentioned a possible conspiracy theory about the ostentatious nature of it being somehow orchestrated to make the make a clause look bad, I'd say I saw a little of that from little bits and pieces all over the political spectrum. But the thing to keep in mind there is that it's not impossible. In Ukraine, there is this case where you are able to buy protesters for a pretty reasonable amount and have them stand in front of, say, some bank to prevent it from doing something or other. And during Maidan, they refer referred to as tatushki, basically just hired thugs, lower income uh, athletic men, and they can do whatever thuggery you need them to do. But like I said, I don't really think that conspiracy theory has much grounds to it. The tactics on display were the very common tactics seen by a lot of the post-football hooligan branch of the protest movements in Ukraine. The various memetics of flares and chanting and slogans and smoke, that just comes out of that subculture. It's kind of unavoidable. But if there's anything that might deserve conspiracy theory, it involves one of the demands presented and its accompanying chant. They demanded the resignation of Interior Minister Arsenovakov, who oversees Ukraine's law enforcement and National Guard. Avakov chort. Avakov is a devil, they said. But the supporters of European Solidarity who were there must know that it was their own politician, Petro Poroshenko, that put him in power to begin with. And Avakov also engineered placing the ultra nationalist volunteer formations under his purview and shepherded many members of the far right into positions of influence, especially the Azov movement. Keep in mind that I said that the head of the Azov movement was against Chernenko, but elements of it, like the honor group, were very much in his favor. Not just in his favor, but the central organizers and main muscle at this protest. So we have this case where Avalkov has his fingerprints, of course, on his own police, but also on the protesters themselves avakov raised these people up so at some point ukraine has to ask the question why is avakov on both sides of the barricades now there has been an idea that he can put protesters on the streets and he can take protesters off the streets he is an irreplaceable man but in the long and short of things this will go on for a while longer the ukrainian court system is slow It's corrupt. It will put hearings back again and again and again. So we'll see more protests. We'll see more reactions to the protests. And we'll just have to follow and evolve on them.
0: And we'll absolutely hear Avakov's name come up again and again. And dear listeners, at some point, I'm sure we'll have a more in-depth piece on Avakov. But needless to say, as Anthony pointed out, he is the irreplaceable man in Ukrainian politics. It's gray cardinal and has his finger in pretty much every pie in the country.
1: Before we sign off, I'd like to ask, do you have any thoughts on this week? Anything you saw, anything you did, any opinions you formed?
0: Like we said in the beginning of this episode, this week has been utterly consumed with discussions about the Russians' motives, Putin's motives. He gave a State of the Union where he said absolutely nothing. It was even less content than usually at these kinds of uh, events. So Russia is, as always, a mystery. But what is not a mystery is the actions of the Russian government and of its military forces. Regardless of anything that the defense minister may say, regardless of anything that Putin may say, the only way that Russia can broadcast its actual intentions is via action. If they will actually move their troops back from the border, then the risk of invasion does fall. On the other hand, all we have is the defense minister's word that he will do so. So until the day the soldiers get back on their trains and get away from the Ukrainian border, we have to act as if Russia is doing exactly what it claims to be posturing, a full throated invasion or reinvasion, if you will, of Ukraine and its mainland.
1: A bit of reassuring news out of the United States is that President Biden acknowledged the Armenian genocide as a genocide, which is actually a fairly giant step forward. Before now, the United States has not recognized the Armenian Genocide as such due to its close relationship with Turkey, who takes a very hostile stance towards anyone who recognizes. Now, genocide denial is a very serious issue. To deny the existence of the Holocaust, to deny the existence of the Holodomor, to deny the existence of the Armenian Genocide is to continue the original crime. And when a government like the Republic of Turkey, refuses to acknowledge this crime and, in fact, aggressively attacks those who say this truth, they continue to perpetuate. But now I'd like to take a look at another country that does not recognize the Armenian genocide, which is, unfortunately, Ukraine. Now, this is obviously very geopolitical. Ukraine and Turkey are very close allies. They are reliant on each other militarily, economically. There's a tremendous amount of tourist movement between the two. So it is very obvious why Kyiv would not want to risk that relationship, but that is ultimately letting politics determine the truth, which cannot be the case. Now, Armenians also have a long history in Ukraine, and it is a somewhat backburner issue to push forward the recognition of the Armenian genocide in Crimea by Joseph Stalin. But more directly, perhaps, is that Ukraine is seeking for recognition of the Holodomor as a genocide and those who oppose this idea do so for either ideological reasons of closeness to the Soviet Union or out of geopolitics of closeness to the modern Russian Federation. If Ukraine wants other nations to put aside these issues of geopolitics in order to recognize the truth, then it should do the same in regards to the Armenians, even if the politics of that are inconvenient.
0: Those are our stories for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Ukraine Without Hype is an independent production by me, Romika Kransky and Anthony Bartaway. Please rate us, subscribe, and share it with your friends so we can keep bringing you news in English from Ukraine and the region.